A new poll shows that 63% of Americans approve of Joe Biden's job performance thus far. The poll by the Associated Press, in conjunction with other scheming and corrupt manipulators of information for political purposes, asked for responses from 2,000 members of the Jimmy Carter fan club, 4,000 people who think Greece was the greatest movie ever made, and six Republicans wandering around in a daze after a train wreck who also thought the train wreck was doing a good job. Those polled were especially impressed with Biden's handling of the Chinese flu, also sometimes called the Wu flu, or the flu Manchu, the flu shoe pork, or the Walt Disney Memorial Death Blast and Uyghur re-education program. Respondents very much enjoyed the way Biden had taken over the Trump administration's miraculously fast production and distribution of the vaccine and turned it into a carnival of misinformation and randomly oppressive rules, along with photo ops of vaccinated politicians in empty rooms wearing masks for no discernible reason, which 72% of those polled found absolutely hilarious, praising the new president's delightful sense of humor in perpetrating such an elaborate troll on the American people. 42% of those polled also praised the administration for exposing Dr. Anthony Fauci as an animatronic android created by the Soviet Union and hidden in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride for the last 50 years until it could be unleashed by the gay mafia that had taken over the Disney Corporation and then set loose to destroy the country in tandem with a spate of animated princess movies celebrating transgenderism and critical race theory. Let me apologize in advance for the joke about the gay mafia. It was just my clever way of saying the Disney Corporation is now in a moral cesspit of cynical woke racism and Chinese collaboration. It was in no way intended to offend any Sicilian gangsters. Where was I? Oh, yeah. 82% of those polled over 82 said they were greatly enjoying the Biden administration's fuel shortages because they reminded them of the 1970s, the salad days of their youth when their hearts were young and they believed they could accomplish anything if they could just wait online six more hours for a tank of gas. 76% of anti-Semites and self-hating Jews approved of the Biden administration's treatment of Israel, saying it was just the thing if you happen to be anti-Semitic or self-hating. Finally, 67% of Democrats were tremendously relieved that Biden had reversed the cruel Trump border policies that had left Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weeping at the sight of children in cages, because now there were twice as many children in cages, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was no longer weeping. The Democrats said they actually kind of enjoyed putting children in cages. They just couldn't stand to see a grown woman cry. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. All right, we're back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. Uh, Thank you, first of all, for all the kind emails about the Hollywood video they made at Daily Wire. It was called, I think, Why Hollywood Canceled Andrew Clavin, you know, for a bunch of white supremacists. Uh, You guys are very kind, and I appreciated the remarks. Speaking of white supremacy, you might want to go on iTunes and subscribe to the show and uh, leave a five-star review. These things are very helpful for the show. They really help. And you can also go on uh, and subscribe to my personal YouTube channel, the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel, uh, you know, where we gather together and do white supremacist things like 
I don't actually know what white supremacists are. Maybe we just wear Viking helmets, and I, I have no idea. But anyway, if you leave a comment and it is sufficiently racist and cruel, uh, we'll include it here uh, as being fitting right into our agenda. Uh, today's comment is from Austin Amity, I think. It says, Clavin's satire is now so close to reality that he is playing actual videos of the country during the segment. Uh, that." That's always literally true. Uh, you have no idea how hard it is writing satire during a Democrat administration. Also, you want to be in the mailbag next week. What you have to do is subscribe. First, you have to scream like that. You have to scream, do that scream and then subscribe. You press watch and it will take you to the podcast. Go to my podcast. There's a little airplane, paper airplane symbol for mailbag. That's where you leave your questions. I will answer questions about anything you want to ask me. All my answers are guaranteed 100% correct uh, and will change your life. And, uh, you know, many of you wonder if they will change your life for the better. Just keep wondering. Also, this is my last show in my house. I'm leaving my house. This was a very important house to me. I wrote my mem I finished my memoir here, and I'm finishing uh, what's kind of the sequel, the brilliantly titled uh, "The Truth and Beauty." Um, and uh, it's been a, it's been a major. This is where Daily Wire. I was when the Daily Wire started. It's been a, it's been a big place, but I'll be gone, and uh, I'll be floating around in Airbnbs for the next couple of weeks. I hope hopefully I'll get to Nashville and do my shows from there, uh, but uh, eventually I will land somewhere else. So as you know, the slogan of the show is dignity, always dignity. And that's why we're advertising the Kitty Poo Club. The Kitty Poo Club is a convenient all-in-one monthly litter box solution. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. And when the month is up, just recycle the box, and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order, plus a free dome, free scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto-ship by going to kittypooclub.com slash Clavin. Just go to kittypooclub.com slash Clavin to get 20% off your first order, plus a free dome, scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto-ship. That's kittypooclub.com slash Clavin. And I know what you're thinking, but... I'm going to tell you how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's. So I have a friend. I have a friend who worked on that '70s show, uh, and I'd like to just—if he's listening—I'd like to tell him to stop writing that '70s show because it's like reality has turned into. We've got inflation. We've got rampant crime. We've got gas lines. Iran is causing trouble again in the Middle East. We've got a president who has no idea what he's doing, like we had back then. And uh, and and oh, but suddenly you can take your mask off, so you don't notice that everything is going down the drain. It's like these left-wing ideas. It's like every generation has to learn once again that these left-wing ideas make life worse. It is just amazing that we have to keep learning this. And I, you ask yourself, what is the appeal of these failed ideas? Why do they keep coming back? And I think it's what I call big think. It's the idea that somehow somebody, some expert, some central authority, maybe just the government in general, can get this great grasp over the big system that's going on and fix it. He's going to fix that big, it's that big system. You know, I, I'm going to quote myself. I wrote a novel, it was published in 1998, called The Uncanny. And one of the heroes of The Uncanny remarks, she says, little minds think great thoughts, but great minds proceed in the smallest stages. And I genuinely think that remark is true, that people, these people have this idea that they have this great 
picture of the world and they can adjust things. And if they can just turn this knob and turn that and the little people in there don't really matter. See, I have this theory that the modern world of republicanism, of individual freedom, of capitalism uh, came into being in the wake of the discoveries of Isaac Newton. People don't really realize what a shocking, a shock to the Western system the discoveries of Isaac Newton were because they suddenly realized that it God wasn't sitting around adjusting each little thing. He wasn't moving the planets with his hand. He wasn't doing each thing. He didn't have to. He made the world to work. And I think that kind of led over the decades and centuries to the idea that maybe the human world could work as well. Maybe that opened the human mind to this idea that, you know, an informed public could go about their business and that would that would raise all ships and everything would and the market would work and all this. That they they didn't need a king like the king of heaven, to play with each little thing and to tell people what to believe and what to think. And it, life would work much better. There would be fewer wars. There would be fewer, little less fighting. There'd be less oppression if people just did what they did. But mankind repeats the original sin just like human beings repeat the traumas of their youths. People who were abused in youth have themselves abused. People who had mean moms sometimes find mean wives. I mean, people repeat the traumas of their youths compulsively. And I think we repeat original sin. Remember, the original sin was that we wanted to be the determinants of good and evil, and we wanted to play God. And I think people want to play God, and they don't like the fact that God made a world for a freedom. They want to make sure that they're playing God, and they're going to adjust every little thing. You know, Two years ago, I gave a speech at Boston College and a riot started. And literally, the police had to hustle me. I, I wouldn't leave until my all the questions were over. But afterwards, the police hustled me out. And the people were just screaming. There was all these angry, angry children, essentially. It wasn't their fault. The administration... Uh, with the help of a tremendously dishonest reporter on the school newspaper, had incited them by quoting me out of context. They did it again like two weeks ago. They looked back on this and blamed the Republicans, the college Republicans, for inviting me in. Th that's what caused the riot. It wasn't the rioters. It wasn't the fact that the faculty and the administration had pumped stupidity into these kids' heads. It was uh, my fault for having an opinion that disagreed. And th this is what they wrote just a couple of weeks ago. They wrote, uh, in November 2019, Boston College Republicans sponsored Andrew Clavin, who has promoted Islamophobia and claimed that European culture is superior to all other cultures. And he adds, these speakers actively discriminated against people, which is harmful to the affected populations and created a hostile divisive environment on campus. What a bunch of garbage. But anyway, their idea is that I said something wrong, that I'm Islamophobic. Islamophobic is just a propaganda word, but I have raised, I disagree with Islam. I'm a Christian. I think they're wrong about the nature of God in many, many ways. But also I have wondered aloud and I've questioned whether some of the tenets of Islam are antithetical to Western ideas, like for instance, the, the need for theocracy, uh, Sharia law. Uh, and I've questioned whether some of those the ideas in Islam might lead to the kind of violence of Islamism. I know there are millions and millions of lovely Muslim people. It has nothing to do with that. I question, I've questioned the ideas. But their idea is, of course, this, ra this idea of racism, this idea of uh, intersectional oppression. They have this big idea that if they can just move, just move this person here and that person, it's all going to... They don't want to question the little details. When it comes to my uh, comments about Europe, those were comments that were lifted out of my uh, autobiography, my memoir, The Great Good Thing, uh, where I said that the nations of Europe from the Renaissance to the First World War produced more of mankind's greatest artistic achievements than any others. That was the comment. And I won't go on to say 
I despise racism. This is not about race. It's not a moral question. It's just that as the discoveries and calculus, reading from the book, as the discoveries and calculus of Newton are more important scientific breakthroughs than anything that came before or since, as the constitution of the American founders is the most profound piece of distilled political wisdom in all history, it makes simple sense that the artistic culture that underlay those advances that involved Shakespeare and Keats and Bach and Mozart, Michelangelo and Raphael, Cervantes and Dickens, all those things, that this was one of the greatest cultures that ever existed on earth. And the final line of this is, this has nothing to do with whether these people were nice or decent or did good things. It only concerns the objects they made and left behind. Now, the left has this big think idea that somehow that's e it's evil to talk about this because it's, ra it's racial. All these people were white. Now, of course, they weren't all the same race. There were Spanish and French and British and, you know, in German, all these different races, in fact, but they all had the same color. And in big think that that's what matters. It's all about the color. So there's something wrong with saying one culture is better than another when I just think this is part of the human race. By the way, they weren't my race. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I had nothing to do. Our race, many of these people hated my race, but they think, oh, they've got it. It's the secret ingredient is the epidermis. You know, if you've ever read Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell is so brilliant. And the reason Thomas Sowell is so brilliant is because he has common sense. He's not like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what his IQ is. I have no idea. But all he has is so much common sense that he's brilliant. And he talks about the fact that, for instance, Western culture in the West, uh, in, in Europe, they had horses. They had oxen. So the Mayans invented the wheel, but they couldn't do anything with it. They invented the wheel. They put it on toys. They put it on children's toys. But in the West, in, in Europe, they could put it on carts because they had draft horses and, dra and oxen that would pull the carts. They could move material from place to place. They had navigable rivers, which you don't have in Africa. They could get from place to place. And they had great ideas. They had the, the Christian, that Christian collision of Christianity with Aristotle and Plato, which became uh, Thomas Aquinasism and, and so shaped the thinking of the West and led to the uh, prominence of reason and led to the uh, the freedoms that came after and kind of led to the ideas that made the West more free. You know, other cultures rose, like China rose, the Muslim culture rose, but they sank back again. And these were things that helped the Western culture, the culture of Europe, um, move forward. Little things, details, accidents. It's not, a, it can't be about genetics, because remember, the people who built Europe were the barbarians to the Greeks. These are the people that the Greeks and Romans called the barbarians. They would have said, oh, these are lesser races. But of course, <laughs> there are no less, lesser races. Just so many accidents play into what happens in history. But they have this big think idea, this simple answer to complex questions that gives them the sense that they can have control of things. And it's all connected. Like racism, it always leads to racism because racism is a typical idea. But all these things are connected. The big think is, is kind of a virus that connects all things. What is our idea? What is the conservative idea? It's that each individual doing what he does will lift everybody up, that the world is made to work, that God made the world to work. Yes, because we live in original sin, because we're broken, we need laws to protect one another, to protect us from each other, so I don't cheat you or rob you or kill you. But we don't need people to lift up, uh, to, to control the uh, market. We don't need people to control our thoughts. We don't need people to control our language, to tell us what we can say. We don't need people knocking us off Twitter for putting forward things. We don't need to manipulate a, man, uh, information to make sure you do what we want you to do. We just give you the information. We just teach you to think, 
and then let you think for yourself, and the world is a better place. I just want to play, just to end this idea, I want to play one video that just really got me. This is Patrice Colores, who is a, a founder of Black Lives Matter. And she met a student who was at a, a book sale that who was working to stop an anti-illegal immigration bill and was looking at her books. And this is what he said and how she reacted. This is cut one. I was at the art publications table today, and I was speaking to this uh, young person from Arizona who's trying to fight uh, SB 1070. And I was, he, he, he grabbed a book and he said, it's like Mal's Red Book. And I was like, man, that's what I was thinking. And it was just really cool to hear him make that connection. I was like, how about you buy like 10 to 15 of these books and you all have like a youth like organizing group where you talk about it and you really try to engage this. And we can just kind of, we need to build off of this. <laughs> she loved his cool. He compared me to Mao who slaughtered tens of millions of people. And you know how Mao slaughtered people? He slaughtered them by telling them how much food they could grow in their ground, right? So that he destroyed the earth, he destroyed the uh, the food industry, people starved to death. He created a famine. He didn't mean to create a famine. He just said, because this is communism, we need to produce this much food, therefore you have to produce this much food. And people started you know, lying about how much food they were producing, and it, it created this terrible famine that caused tens of millions of people. The racism of Black Lives Matter, and it is racism, and there's racism on the right, too. You get big thinkers on the right as well. The racism of Black Lives Matter and the big think of controlling the economy, they go together. They fit together. Our idea, the idea that we are defending, is the idea of freedom, that that, that means some people are going to do bad things. It means some people are going to think bad things. It means some people are not going to like other people. It means some people are not going to want to associate with other people. But it also means that each person is going to produce what he thinks will make his life better and make all of our lives better in the process. It's the little things. It's little people doing little things that makes the world work. We do not need, we do not need some human God to control us all. Big think is evil. Liberty is the antidote where we just teach people what they need to know and let each one go his way. So I, as you may know, am a contributing editor to the magazine City Journal, which is published by the Manhattan Institute. It is a terrific magazine. It has set policies that have changed cities, changed the country. They have got fearless writers like Heather McDonald and Chris Rufo, who is fighting against critical race theory. Uh, it's got fearless writers like me. I, I write for City Journal from time to time. They publish Theodore Dalrymple, one of my favorites, Steve Malanga. If you read City Journal online already or have heard of those authors, you might want to know that City Journal is one of the best print magazines in the business. I get it delivered to my house. It is absolutely terrific. And for a limited time, my listeners can enter for a chance to get their hands on a print issue of City Journal, the magazine, for free. Just go to city-journal.org slash giveaway. Enter your information and you will be contacted if you are selected. Again, that's city-journal.org slash giveaway. It's, it's a beautifully done magazine and the content is terrific. To mask or not to mask, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of liberal insults or to take the stab against a sea of COVID. <laughs> this is a high class show, folks. You know, the handling of the Chinese flu the handling of the Wuhan virus is one of the great examples of big think. I think this is one of the biggest failures 
of government in the West in, in almost as long as I can remember. I don't think it's the biggest failure of government in the West, but it, I don't believe that one life was saved by the policies put in place by this country. Trump had the right idea, but he, which is that federalism, he let people do what they want, but he took too long to take the focus off himself. That really hurt him, I think. But their idea was basically, if we tell you this and you behave like that, then other people are going to do this. And, I, you know, it's kind of like I went to my doctor and he said, you should wear a mask for political as a political message. And I said, that's not my politics. My politics is I should do what's best for me and let other people do what's best for them. If I'm vaccinated, I don't want to wear a mask anymore. The way this this crisis should have been handled. And by the way, I had no objection to 15 days to slow the spread when people didn't know what was going on. But eventually what should have happened was the federal government should have said, we are going to make supplies available and we're going to make information available. And then each state should do what they think best. It's ridiculous to have one big plan for New York and the same plan for South Dakota where nobody lives. That is insane. Not only that, but governors should have said, "In your, we are going to provide this information, we're going to provide funding, we're going to provide equipment, but in your locality. This is why Andrew Cuomo killed so many people. This is why Andrew Cuomo is the Michael Myers uh, from Halloween of the uh, of the pandemic because he is a control freak. New York is set up for towns and counties to distribute vaccines. It's set up for towns and counties to act on their own. But Cuomo would not let that happen. And then, of course, at the same time, because the big thinkers always want to control your mind, they think they have to control what kind of, of information comes to you. We had the New York Times and CNN spreading this religion. This is uh, Cut 29. Hey, can I help you? Have you accepted fear into your life? Fear is our savior. Have you thought about giving your life to fear? Dear Father Fear, please grant me the weakness to abandon my free will and my hopes and dreams. Do you have a minute for me to come inside and tell you about how fear will improve your life? Yes, yes I do. Fear is our savior. With worshiping fear, it's not so much about where you're gonna go after you die, it's more about being acutely aware that you could die in any moment. The spirit of fear is omnipresent, it's everywhere. You can take a look at anything in your life, and if you're a believer, you'll find something to be afraid of. <laughs> Comedian J.P. Spears playing Dean Bacay from the New York Times. Uh, so now we have this announcement. Here's, here's what the announcement should have been. This is my imitation of the announcement. Don't pay attention to the children in cages. Don't pay attention to the blow up of our Middle East strategy and the war in Israel because of our policies. Uh, don't play, pay attention to inflation. Don't pay attention to the fact that no one wants a job because we're paying them to stay home. Hooray. You can take off your masks. Here's Joe Biden, your president and almost mine, making the announcement cut 30. I want to be clear about what the CDC, CDC is saying and what the CDC is not saying. The CDC is saying they have concluded that fully vaccinated people are at a very, very low risk of getting COVID-19. Therefore, if you've been fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. Let me repeat, if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. But if you've not been vaccinated or if you're getting a two shot vaccine and you've not gotten your you only had your first shot, but not your second, or you haven't waited the full two weeks after your second shot, you still need to wear a mask. 
<laughs> you know, I started out by that, you know, joking about that poll. Those are a real poll. 63% of the public supports this clown. And I, I, there was a story today, public opinion surveys ahead of the 2020 presidential election were the most inaccurate in 40 years, according to an expert panel convened by the main trade group for pollsters. The panel said polls overstated support for Democrat nominee Joe Biden by 3.9 percentage, by four percentage points, basically, in the national popular vote. The worst polling in 40 years. And the panel said its work hadn't yet pointed to a way to correct the error. Stop lying. <laughs> Nobody thinks this guy is doing a good job. Nobody thinks the guy is running the country. They think that Anthony Fauci, however, is this is part of big thing. Part, experts are part of big thing. You know, they say follow the science. They keep saying follow the science, but you're not, you don't follow science. You lead the science. We should lead the science because science doesn't have a moral sense. Only we have a moral sense. And when each individual follows his moral sense and is educated and is uh, well-informed, we will get a better outcome. But they think you follow the science and the expert is going to lead the way. And that is what has led Fauci. Fauci, good doctor. You know, Fauci's a good doctor, but he got in front of those cameras and he he basically thought he was going to control this. My, my doctor, who is a brilliant, brilliant man, sat and, and I love the guy, but he's a far leftist. He sat and told me how he would have stopped this, this pandemic. He said, I could have shut it down in two weeks. And then he told me, and I listened, I thought, this is insane. Nobody would have done it. You, you would have had to close the borders. You know, you would have had to completely locked everybody up. Nobody, you know, it was, it was sitting there. You sit alone in a room and you know one thing. He's a great doctor. He's a great doctor. He knows that one thing, but he doesn't know the Constitution. He doesn't know the, the what individual people will do, will do. He doesn't know what life is like in South Dakota. He doesn't know what life is like anywhere but in New York. That's that's big think, right? That's the idea that experts are going to lead the way. Instead, what you need is a leader who takes all those experts in and makes a final decision, basically using all the expertise and and dispersing. Uh, authority to people beneath him, right? So the governors and the mayors and the people and the individuals in their towns, that's how you get good results in a free country, in a free country, if you want to be a free country. I want to show you, this is just the past few days, Anthony Fauci, right? This is first on Sunday. This is Fauci on Chuck Todd's show, uh, Meet the Press, uh, cut nine. Okay, let's get to mask wearing because this is where, uh, you know, at what point can we stop wearing masks outside? At what point, if vaccinated people get together, do you take the masks off? And are we going to, but is the mask going to be something we have with us in a seasonal aspect? You know, that's quite possible. I think people have gotten used to the fact that wearing masks, clearly, if you look at the data, diminishes respiratory diseases. We've had practically a non-existent flu season this year, merely because people we're doing the kinds of public health things that were directed predominantly against COVID-19. The Australians during their winter, same thing. They had almost no flu, largely due to the kinds of things, including mask wearing. So it is conceivable that as we go on a year or two or more from now, that during certain seasonal periods, mm -hmm. when you have respiratory borne viruses like the flu, people might actually elect to wear masks to diminish the likelihood that you'll spread these respiratory-borne diseases. <laughs> yeah, people are getting used to them. You know, maybe there's no flu because they were paying people money to, to die of COVID instead of, have, of reporting the flu. But, you know, professions come with personalities. 
writers are self-obsessed and uh, you know a little bit uh, self and self-examining. The old joke about writers is how many writers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one to hold the light bulb while the world revolves around him. You know that people who go into professions have certain kinds of personalities. Lawyers are very, you know, uh, particular and they actually like to fight with each other. Uh, military people see everything as a crisis. Doctors, almost all of them, are hypochondriacs. They are hypochondriacs and they want everybody else to be a hypochondriac too. But long before this pandemic hit, I heard doctors saying, every time you pat your dog, you must wash your hands. <laughs> he said, what, what do I do every time he licks my face, you know? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. People are not going to live that way. And if they do live that way, it'll be the end of the country because some people who don't live that way will come and kill us all. All right, so that's, that's Fauci on Sunday. Here's Fauci two days ago, cut eight. The best news that you just said, clarity in that, is that when you're outside, you, if you're vaccinated, you don't need a mask at all outside. Does that have anything to do with my proximity to another person outside who might not be vaccinated? No. It so, the, so a vaccinated person only outside, should, even yeah. in close proximity yeah. to unvaccinated people, does not need a mask. Right. The only time you need a mask if you're vaccinated is if you're going to a very, very concentrated mm -hmm. area where people are literally walking all over each other. Mm -hmm. Now, again, my doctor told me this months ago, right? He told me this when I went to see him after getting vaccinated. I said, can I now spread this? He said, no. Can I get it? If you get it, it's not going to be bad enough. You're not going to spread it. It's, it's not going to happen. So what changed? What happened? It's what another, he thinks he's going to control you by giving you the information when he thinks you should have it. He even sees the new CDC regulations, which are clearly just a distract from this news cycle, which has just been a disaster for Biden. He thinks that this is, he's telling us this in order to control our minds. He's not telling us this because we don't need masks anymore. He's doing it just to control our minds. It's cut 31. What we're doing now with the relaxation of the restrictions on people who are vaccinated is trying to get back to a degree of normality, which people who get vaccinated deserve to have that. That's been one of the things that's been the concern, saying, if I get vaccinated, what difference is it gonna make? My life hasn't really changed that much. Well, now your life is gonna change that much. For people who are not vaccinated, this might be an incentive for them to get vaccinated. <laughs> He's not just telling you what, you know, as a doctor, as a doctor, a doctor is a fit person, a good person. To, you know, you don't listen to the guy on Twitter who's a Twitter doctor. You listen to a doctor who tells you, you know, is it safe? Do I now, you know, how dangerous is this? Uh, I called my doctor when this thing began. I called my personal doctor and said, am I in danger? You know, he's told me certain things about my personal condition, what the disease was like. He told me what he knew at that time. And I made my decisions according to that that's that's fine. That's what a doc, but he's not doing that. He's saying we now are giving you an incentive to, as as a public official. We now feel we should release this information to give you an incentive to get vaccinated. Nothing's changed from two days before when he was telling Chuck Todd we should wear this every uh, winter. You know, nothing's changed. Suddenly, it's just he sees the advantage to doing this. This is big think in action. Experts trying to control people, not by giving them their expert advice, which would be welcome, not by giving them their expert knowledge so that people can decide for themselves, but giving them the information when they think that information will accomplish the public policy goals that they have formed in their greater wisdom. This is the thing that is driving this country back into the 70s. The gas lines. I mean, I, I don't want to be unfair about the gas lines. I know there was an act of uh, cyber terrorism that cut off the gas supply. But still, the, the, uh, the things that people are doing to control the 
production of energy in this country because they think they can control the weather. That's that's big thing too. They're going to control the weather. They're going to make the weather different. You know, and eventually you're going to have the the same gas shortage you had in the 70s, the inflation we had in the 70s, the fact that our enemies, especially Iran, are on the rampage again. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, That's back from the 70s. It's all that big thing. All these people who sit around thinking that they are going to move the planets in their proper courses instead of letting things happen as they would if each person fends for himself. They could be educating us, but instead they're controlling us. All right, one of my favorite ads because I really get to let myself free when I say rockauto.com. That's who I really am. The guy who says that is who I really am. The kind of guy who, when his car is broken, doesn't just get in my car and sit there pretending to drive to an auto parts store. That's ridiculous. And first of all, you get there, it's not even, it's imaginary, and there's an imaginary guy behind the counter who doesn't know any more about auto parts than you do. Plus, the prices go up all the time. Rockauto.com is right there on your computer, a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Their catalog is unique. It's easy to navigate. You can see all the parts available and the prices are reliably low. Plus, you get to say rockauto.com. You can't do that sitting in your broken car. You can only do it in front of your computer and watch the women swoon. Some of them don't even know what the word swoon means, but when you say rockauto.com, they'll find out. Go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box so they know you we sent you and write it the same way. Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. The stuff that's happening in Israel with Hamas shelling uh, the, you know, uh, the Israelis and the Israelis fighting back, trying to defend themselves. Everything about it is big think. Every, it's caused by big think. It's being reacted to with big think. And again, racism is just a species of big think, right? Racism isn't a thing unto itself. Racism, communism, they're both part of this big thing. You know, so what, what happened? It's, it's a really complicated complicated thing. It's hard enough to understand what's going on in your own country. It's hard enough to understand what's going on in your own city. This is a different country where all kinds of local things are happening that have brought this about. There was some kind of court case going on uh, in a neighborhood in East Jerusalem uh, where courts were deciding whether uh, Jewish Israelis could evict a bunch of Arab Israelis who held leases on these homes. Uh, The Jewish Israelis held leases on these homes that went back to 1948, you know, so that that was a case that was being decided. Uh, The Palestinians uh, were going to have elections. Uh, Hamas has been, um, Hamas has been in, I'm I'm sorry, Fatah has been in power for a four-year term for 16 years. This guy, Mohammed uh, Abbas, people are getting tired of him. They're saying that the PLO, that the this radical uh, fighting of the Palestinians isn't helping. Uh, it was Jerusalem Day, so religious Jews were going to march through the city uh, to mark the unification of Jerusalem, and Arabs were angry about that. And Trump, Trump's terrific moves toward peace by cutting essentially the Palestinian question out of the negotiations so that countries like Saudi Arabia could start to think, you know, if we team up with the Israelis against Iran, we can keep Iran, this evil uh, nation, this evil terrorist nation from taking over the region. They were doing that and the Palestinians were beginning to realize that organizations like Hamas, terrorist organizations like Hamas, 
we're not really serving them. And that has, and Hamas has got to do something to make sure that they feel that they're served like killing innocent Israelis. That's one of the things they have to do. It's complicated. Do, do the Israelis always do the right thing? No, the Israelis don't always do the right thing. Individual Israelis don't do, always do the right thing. Sometimes the government doesn't do the right thing, but Israel is a sovereign nation that is free and that treats people freely, that treats women and men freely, which is not true in most of the Muslim nations. Let me read you a little bit of the Hamas charter, right? The Hamas charter, this is what they say their purpose is. It opens with a quote, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. This is from the martyr Imham Hassan al-Bana, a blessed memory, it says. This is a genocidal movement. This is a movement bent on destroying all the Jews. That's what it is. It is when people support Hamas, when people compare Hamas to Israel, they're comparing a free democratic state to a genocidal terrorist movement. That's what that's what's happening, okay? All the other things that play into this, you could if you were on the scene, if you were really educated about it, if you were really knowledgeable about it, you might say, "Oh, well, the court should have decided this." You might say, "Oh, well, you shouldn't march on Jerusalem Day." Actually, they canceled that march. You might say all kinds of things, but let's not be confused about the two sides. Israel is a sovereign democratic state. Hamas is a genocidal terrorist organization. I want to read you as I say, racism is a species of big think, and the greatest uh, big think racism is anti-Semitism, because when people start on anti-Semitism, they think the Jews control the world and are responsible for every single thing that happens in it. This is from the Hamas Charter. It is just a list of anti-Semitic tropes that have been around forever. For a long time, the enemies, meaning the Jews, have been planning skillfully and with precision for the achievement of what they have attained. They, look, they took into consideration the causes affecting the current of events. They strive to amass great and substantive material wealth, ooh, those rich Jews, which they devoted to the realization of their dream. With their money, they took control of the world media, news agencies, the press, publishing houses, broadcasting stations, and others. Ah, they've really got it figured out. You know, they've, they've really honed this down to a complex series of details. It's the Jews! With their money, they go on, they stirred revolutions in various parts of the world with the purpose of achieving their interests and re the fruit therein. They were behind the French Revolution. I bet you didn't know that. I bet you thought the French were behind the French Revolution. They were behind the Communist Revolution. And most of the revolutions we heard and hear about here and there. With their money, they formed secret societies such as Freemasons, Rotary Clubs, the Lions, and other in different others in different parts of the world for the purpose of sabotaging societies and achieving Zionist interests. I mean, this is like listening to a guy raving in his mother's basement. This is the Hamas Charter. With their money, they were able to control imperialistic countries and instigate them to colonize many countries in order to enable them to exploit their resources and spread corruption there. It's all the Jews. You may speak as much as you want about regional and world wars. The Jews, they were behind World War I when they were able to destroy the Islamic Caliphate, <laughs> making financial gains and controlling resources. They obtained the Balfour Declaration, formed the League of Nations through which they could rule the world. They were behind World War II, through it, <laughs> yeah, they were behind World War II. I get it. Let's let's wipe us all out. That'll help us take over the world. Through which they made huge financial gains. The ones who survived by trading in armaments and paved the way for the establishment of their state. It was they who instigated the replacement of the League of Nations with the United Nations and the Security Council to enable them to rule the world through them. There is no war going on anywhere 
without them having a fin- their finger in it. That is big think in a nutshell. It's all the Jews. If we can just convince you of that, you will become an angry, hateful, murderous person who will, because you think you're going to solve all the, pro- all the problems of the world. You want to see an example? Here's Rashid Tlaib, one of your congresswomen. Now, you may not have been able to hear that because she was screeching like a banshee through her mask. This is what she said. What they are doing to the Palestinian people is what they continue to do to our black brothers and sisters here. So I want you to know this. As you all are marching for freedom of Palestine, please know that you must be marching for everybody's freedom. It is all interconnected. Who is they in that sentence? Congresswoman, who the hell is they? She's got it all figured out, too. They have all got it figured out. And, you know, on another level, on another level, this is coming about because of big things, these murders, this murderous attacks on Israel, on innocent people in Israel. I mean, these are missiles flying. If it weren't for that Iron Dome, which manages to shoot some of the missiles uh, out of the sky, this would really be a, a mass, an act of mass murder. Well, one day my new house will come. I will get to my new house. And one of the things I'm going to do when I get there, if they haven't done it already, is put a ring doorbell out there. So no matter where I am, I can see who is at the door. I can talk to whoever is at the door, find out what they want, communicate with them from any place, just on an app on your phone. With Ring, you can keep an eye on your home no matter where you are. They've got motion detection, so you'll get notified even if somebody doesn't ring the doorbell, even if they're just stopping by. You can keep track of your house. You can make sure your packages are safe and secure. It is a terrific device to keep peace of mind. There's a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com forward slash Clavin. It comes with Ring's Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro. So don't wait. Get a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com slash Clavin. That's the Ring Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro. It's the perfect way to start your Ring experience. Go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. If anyone comes to your house, no matter where you are, you can ask them, how do you spell Clavin? If they put an E in there, (laughs) that's what you want to hear. A lot of this, all of Hamas is funded by Iran. All of these guys are funded by Iran. These missiles are coming from Iran. This is an Iranian action, okay? I want you to think back on Obama. Remember that Barack Obama, and some of you may even be too young now even to remember Barack Obama, but Barack Obama, before he became president, accomplished nothing. He accomplished zero. That's really, he, he really never did, he had nothing to his name. And the press, as they built him up, as they turned him into this uh, secular saint, they had to come up with things. They said, well, he edited, he edited the Harvard Law Journal. Really? Like, you know, Eisenhower won World War II. <laughs> Editing the Harvard Law Journal is not a qualification for president. He, he accomplished nothing before he became president. When he left the presidency, when he took over the presidency, the wars in the Middle East were essentially over. The war in Iraq was essentially over. When he left Islamic State-controlled territory that was the size of Ohio, these murderous, murderous terrorists, ISIS, which he couldn't even call ISIS because he knew better than everybody else. We called them ISIL. They, they had taken over an area the size of Ohio, which... Hopeful terrorists thought, oh, the caliphate is actually coming back, so we will join this terrorist movement. That was an inspiration. Trump wiped out that caliphate 
in about 20 minutes simply because he said, oh, bad guys have taken over some territory. Let's go kill them, which is not a big think idea. It is a perfectly practical, reasonable idea. But that is what Obama did. Okay, but what was the idea that he was playing with? Why did this happen? He had this idea. Mike Duran writes about this in um, in the Tablet magazine. He has a very, very long piece. Uh, I told him he should break it down to an op-ed size so that everybody can read it. But it's a very long piece explaining that this Iran nuclear deal that Obama had is not an idea, is not to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. It, the, all the provisions that would stop them from getting a nuclear weapon have a sundown clause in a decade. It, it's, it's nothing. They can continue their research. They can t- continue to collect the material. But they had an idea that if they allowed Iran to be the power in the Middle East, America would be able to withdraw and Iran would be the sort of natural leader of the Middle East and then somehow would stop from being a genocidal terrorist power, which is what it is, and an oppressive power, the people in Iran. You know, we're, not, we're never talking about the individual people in these countries. We're talking about the leadership. The people in Iran hate the leadership of Iran. They hate this terrorist this terrorist uh, regime that has kept them in poverty. They're not, they don't like them either. But it was Obama's idea that if we just, then suddenly they would become nice. See, they would, have the, they would have the power that they wanted, and so now they would become nice because they're not acting on their philosophy. They're not acting like adults with a philosophy. They're acting on some way because we're bit bad, and if we're nice to them, then they'll be... You know, it's a nuts. It's a nuts idea. And so the Trump administration discarded it, got rid of the agreement. They got rid of... Uh, they started to say to the other nations, if you make peace with Israel, you'll be able to stand up to Iran, and that was working. Biden has gone right back to it. He has gone right back to the idea that somehow they can manipulate Iran into the, if they put Iran in the center of the of power in the Middle East, somehow that's going to manipulate them. It's going to change their minds. They're going to become different. You know, maybe they'll even take their masks off except put them on in a certain seat. I mean, it's this idea that they have control over things. They do not have control over things. Things have to be dealt with one at a time. Things have to be dealt with realistically. You cannot impose your ideas on the world. What's happening now is Iran said, oh, if you're going to, if we've got this lenient, uh, soft, Democrat presidency in America again, let's start bombing Israel and really amp the pressure on so that they can follow, they're going to follow their logic. They're going to think, well, they'll stop bombing Israel once we give them the power that they need. It's the stupidest idea ever. It is part of the big thing and it's part of what's causing the trouble in the Middle East. So the one policy so far that I completely agree with the Biden administration on is the pullout from Afghanistan. And I believe that when you've been in a place for 20 years and you feel you can't pull out because there will be atrocities, then the question is, what is going to change 20 years from now? In other words, are we going to be there forever? And I don't think that that's a really good idea. Uh, and when, and I've, I've been to Afghanistan, and there's really not a country there. There's just a bunch of tribes living in medieval, the medieval world, maybe the pre-medieval world. And so I really don't think there's a strategy for winning. I think that if we leave, bad things will happen. Uh, but I don't think we can go everywhere in the world that bad things are going to happen and stop them. I think that that is a, uh, a bad path for America to take. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the way that war is represented in the arts, which is my field and it's the field I love. And I've felt that in the West over the years, there have been different ways of representing wars. And I just wanted to take a look at them, not to come to any kind of conclusion, this is what we should feel, this is what we should think, but just to widen the way that we look at war and we understand war. Because some of the stuff that has been written and portrayed about war is far deeper 
than the kind of stupid idea of an anti-war movie or an anti-war novel, which to me is like writing an anti-hurricane novel. I mean, war is something that is going to happen. In the oldest works that we consider kind of the works of Western civilization, war is really represented as just a thing that people do. It is just part of, uh, you know, it's part of human life. The, the reasons for war are sometimes not big. Obviously, the Iliad, one of the first great works of Western literature, is about a woman who's been stolen by a guy, and the guy's brother leads an entire nation to war to get her back. Uh, Paris steals Helen of Troy from Menelaus of the Spartans, and Menelaus's brother Agamemnon leads the Greeks uh, in a what becomes a ten-year war against the Trojans, and uh, and that's that's the whole reason. It's just a fight over a girl, basically. It's like a bar fight that just becomes one of the most famous wars in human history. So there are some people who think that I've been broadcasting from my home because I was afraid to go out. And that's actually not true. I've been doing it because the Daily Wire moved, moved out of town. But, but if you do get caught in your house by, oh, let's say a pandemic and a lockdown, you want to be ready with ReadyWise. ReadyWise provides emergency meals, freeze-dried fruits and vegetables for convenient on-the-go nutrition. And they even have new adventure meals that you can take hiking, camping, or on other outdoor activities. ReadyWise makes being prepared simple and affordable. You can order online and have nutritious meals shipped directly to your doorstep. They're long-lasting and they're easy to use. This week, my listeners can get 10% off at ReadyWise.com when entering Clavin at checkout or by calling 855-474-4084. ReadyWise is a 30-day, no-questions-asked return policy, so there's no risk in taking the initiative to get you and your family prepared today. That's ReadyWise. R-E-A-D-Y-W-I-S-E dot com, promo code CLAVEN to get 10% off. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sure, anyone can spell ReadyWise. How do you spell CLAVEN? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. No easy. No easy. I, I just make it look easy. Conquest was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Alexander the Great was called the Great, not because he was a swell guy, but because he conquered the known world, and that changed human history. Uh, many Roman emperors, uh, many Roman, uh, the guys who were like the president of, of Rome, started as conquerors and could come back and say, I conquered this, and that's, that was why uh, you should vote for me and why I should be among you. The Jews in Palestine in the Old Testament are sent in to conquer the land. The land God has given them is occupied land, and they are sent in to conquer. And there's nothing, nobody thought there was anything odd or wrong with that, is what people did. It was part of life. One of the outliers in that kind of portrayal is in Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. He's called the father of history, or one of the fathers of history, I guess, with Herodotus. Um, and Pericles, the leader of the Athenians, makes a what's called the funeral, his famous funeral oration, which was like a memorial day service for the war dead. And he puts forward the idea that their way of life which is freedom, which is leaving people alone, which is letting individuals do different things and not controlling people, is worth defending. It is worth defending that, it is worth fighting for that in and of itself. He does go on and talk about it as a practical matter. They, the Athenians had put together, stitched together a league that was like an empire, and Pericles says an empire may be wrong to take, but it's dangerous to let it go. And so he basically makes a very practical argument, but he also makes a moral argument. And that becomes a more general idea as Christianity 
infiltrates the West and people start to think about it. And, you know, Jesus looked at war. Jesus mentions war, I think, once. And he looks at it as a natural thing. He's just giving an example. He says a king, uh, was, if a king goes to war against another king, he's going to first sit down and figure out whether he has enough troops to win. He just talks about it as this is what kings do. It's part of, it's part of life. But because Jesus' Jesus's preaching emphasized love and peace and forgiveness, Thinkers that came after Jesus had to start to think, well, how can we be Christians and still wage war? And uh, Aquinas, uh, Augustine and later Aquinas put together a, a philosophy of the just war, what was a just war. And this became extended to violence in general during the Middle Ages when barons, knights, began to build castles that fortified places that couldn't be uh, you couldn't attack them, so these people just had power over their little piece of territory. And these guys were mostly brutes. I mean, they were people who would go out and rape, they would fight, they would, you know, do, do, commit all kinds of atrocities. And the church, to, in order to sort of convince them that there was a responsibility that came with their power, began to encourage works about chivalry. The idea that, um, that there should be a code of honor to knighthood. And obviously, the story of King Arthur and his knights of the round table uh, is the best example. And the very fact of the round table was the idea, no, we're not going to compete with each other. We are going to be equals. We're going to have a, a equality. Even King Arthur sits at the round table. So all the knights uh, begin to have an idea of kind of Western equality. And they fight for women. They fight to protect the weak. They fight to protect uh, their country. They still go to war, but they are fighting for the good. Uh, and, you know, today there's a, a, a British show called Merlin that dramatizes some of this and puts forward a kind of understanding of what that sort of chivalric code is. And if you listen to it, it sounds very much like Pericles. So it actually comes from both the Christian and the classical tradition. Here's a little excerpt from the, the British show Merlin, cut 12. Canaan attacks tomorrow. Canaan's brutal. He fights only to kill, which is why he will never defeat us. Look around. In this circle, we're all equals. You're not fighting because someone's ordering you to. You're fighting for so much more than that. You fight for your homes. You fight for your family. You fight for your friends. You fight for the right to grow crops in peace. And if you fall, you fall fighting the noblest of causes. Fighting for your very right to survive. And when you're old and grey, you'll look back on this day and you'll know you weren't the right to live every day in between. So you fight for your family, for your friend. Free Al Gore! See, now that is basically Pericles' funeral oration with the Christian overlay that you fight only when it is just to fight, when it is right to fight. And you can follow that thought of why, how it becomes symbolic, how violence becomes symbolic. We're not fighting for territory, we're fighting over principle. As they say in the Bible, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're fighting against principalities and powers. And in the in the Elizabethan era, uh, Edmund Spencer wrote a famous epic poem called The Fairy Queen. I don't think he ever finished it, uh, called The Fairy Queen, which tells tales of Arthur Arthurian knights, but the people they're battling are basically representatives of sins, of lust and greed. And so battle becomes a symbolic thing. But at the same time Spencer was writing that, Shakespeare was writing, and Shakespeare had a very different view. Shakespeare's view is basically that 
There is a season for war and a season for love. And these are the two things that people do. Men go off and fight wars. They come back and then they engage with women and they have, uh, you know, and they do love. They do war and they do love. It's just a natural thing. Shakespeare was not a romantic. He said, you know, men have died and worms have eaten them, but not for love. Love was just something that happened in people's lives. And war was something that just happens in people's lives. If you've never seen Kevin Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, it is a must-see film. In 1993, it is one of the best, one of the two best Shakespeare films ever made. Branagh is beautiful. And it opens with this beautiful, beautiful scene of the warriors coming home and they're riding in and they're just bold men coming back and the women are rushing out in joy to meet them. And the women, you know, just can't wait for their men to come back and the men can't wait to get to the women and start the process of life and love again. And they all run together and the scene ends with the women and the men sort of lined up in front of each other like two armies, like two opposing armies. And basically Branagh has caught the Shakespearean idea as he is so good at doing that First you fight the war of war, and then you fight the war of love. And so the war is kind of the male thing, uh, and then love is the, fem- the th- place where the female sort of rules. That's her her uh, venue, uh, basically. And you can see, you know, there's a scene in Much Ado when uh, Robert Sean Leonard uh, is speaking to um, Denzel Washington's uh, Don Pedro. He's the leader of the group. And Denzel just turns in one of the great performances in this thing. And Robert Sean Lennon says, he's Claudio, he says, you know, I couldn't fall in love before we went to war. I like this girl, but now that we're back from war, I find that I'm in love. Here's the scenes, cut 10. When you went onward on this ended action, I looked upon her with a soldier's eye that liked, but had a rougher task in hand than to drive liking to the name of love. But now I am returned and that war thoughts have left their places vacant. In their rooms come thronging soft and delicate desires, all prompting me how fair young hero is, saying, I liked her ere I went to wars. Thou wilt be like a lover presently and tire the hero with a book of words. (laughs) If thou dost love fair hero, cherish it. (laughs) This is the time. There's time for war and there's a time for love. And it raises a question that is central in Shakespeare, that how do you balance these two things? If it's yin and yang, if it's the male impulse toward war and the woman's impulse toward love, and these are two forces that flow through humanity, what happens when one of those forces gets stopped up? And that is the speech, the famous speech of Richard III, who is a Uh, a humpback. He's got a bad arm. Uh, He's an ugly little man, basically. And he says, now the wars are over. He says, now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer. Our wars are over. It's time for love. But I can't participate in love because I'm an ugly, uh, distorted little man. And so he decides that he instead is going to start murdering people to get the throne because he is thwarted in this because he is only made for one side of the human uh, equation. He is going to become a villain. Here's Alan Cummings delivering that portion of the speech. Why, I, in this weak, piping time of peace, gave no delight to pass away the time unless to see my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain. 
and hate the idle pleasures of these days. So this is, uh, of course, coming from Shakespeare, insanely insightful that when war stops, when men are no longer warriors, they begin to feel resentful toward what he calls this weak piping time of peace, especially if they're not fit for love or feel that they don't make good lovers, uh, they begin to feel frustrated. You know, when when we if we skip ahead a couple hundred years and we get to Victorian England, where the the victory of against Napoleon was kind of like our victory over the Soviet Union. It set England free to become the leader of the free world. It made them, it gave them the English century, a time of peace. And there was an old phrase, this comes back, this is back from like the 16th century, the phrase that was, England was a paradise for women, a purgatory for men, and hell on the horses. And you start to see, as the Victorian era goes forward, you start to see people, men, start to yearn for war as a testing ground and start to resent the world of women, the world of love. So as you know, I like an occasional whiskey from time to time. You know, not too much, but a a good one. And if you like standing for the national anthem or if you support our military and first responders, you want to celebrate a job well done, Redneck Riviera Whiskey could be your whiskey. It's sourced from America's heartland. It's blended and bottled in Kentucky. And Redneck Riviera Whiskey is the smoothest whiskey available from the glass to the cork. And whiskey inside is 100% made in America and 100% owned by our friend, country singer, John Rich. A portion of all profits proudly benefit the Folds of Honor. To date, Redneck Riviera Whiskey has funded over 110 college grants for kids who have lost a mom or dad while serving our country. For more information or to find a store near you, visit redneckriviera.com. That's redneckriviera.com so you can drink American. Redneck Riviera whiskey is a distilled spirit with 40% ABV. Redneck Spirits Group is responsible for this ad and is located at 10917 Old Harrods Woods Circle, Louisville, Kentucky, 40223. There's a wonderful poem after you finish watching Much Ado About Nothing. And seriously, if you haven't seen that film, you should watch it. It's just fantastic. But there's also a wonderful long poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called Maud. It was written in 1850. And it captures this sense that a peaceful society becomes woman-ish, not womanly. It becomes woman-ish. It becomes effeminate. And it becomes sickly. And it needs war to purify it. The narrator of Maud uh, is a very morbid guy who uh, forms this very morbid attachment to Maud. He falls in love with her in this very kind of sick, twisted way. But he begins the poem. He begins the poem by thinking about the place where his father committed suicide because he he lost his business. He went bankrupt. And that's a kind of a typical idea of this you know, feminine time. You're doing business instead of war. And business, you get cheated out of it, and he's been killed. And so he's thinking about where his father committed suicide. And this is what he says. He says, I hate the dreadful hollow behind the little wood. Its lips in the field above are dabbled with blood-red heath. The red-ribbed ledges drip with a silent horror of blood and echo there. Whatever is asked her answers death. For there in the ghastly pit, long since a body was found, he who had given me life, O Father, O God, was it well, mangled and flattened and crushed and dinted into the ground. There yet lies the rock that fell with him when he fell. Now, if you listen to that carefully, what he's talking about is a vagina. I mean, what he's describing when he describes the place where his father dies, he says, I hate the dreadful hollow behind the little wood. Its lips in the field above are dabbled with blood-red heath. The red-ribbed ledges drip with a silent horror of blood. 
And so he's basically saying this feminine world of peace that he's in uh, is a morbid, twisted world that destroys men. And at the end of the, of the story, and I won't tell you the whole story because it's a wonderful poem. It's a really good dramatic story. The Crimean War starts and he goes to war and he says for the peace, and he's thrilled. He says, for the peace that I deemed no peace is over and done. And now by the side of the black and Baltic deep and deathful grinning mouths of the fortress flames the bread, blood red blossom of war with a heart of fire. Let it flame or fade and the war roll down like wind. We have proved we have hearts in a cause. We are noble still. So in other words, this purifying idea of war. And at the end, if you've ever read The Magic Mountain, which basically details this sickly place at the end of the Victoria era, which is like the Hotel California, people with tuberculosis go into this uh, sanatorium to heal and they never come out. They don't come. They just stay there because it, they have no place to go. And it ends with the hero disappearing into the smoke of World War One with this hope that civilization will be renewed and purified. And instead, it was the end of Europe. It was the end of that Europe civil, European civilization that I started this show talking about, which was the highest point that humanity has yet reached in terms of creating culture. And it was destroyed in World War I and then World War II. So that's the Shakespearean pattern, the Shakespearean pattern that there are kind of forces that flow through the human heart and that if you stop them up in one place, they go in another place. But remember, there's also this Christian side of war in which war can, a violence in which violence is fought for the good and thereby somehow becomes symbolic of spiritual warfare. And that Christian pa uh, pattern of violence was continued from the knights of old, the, uh, the fables of the Arthurian knights, and it became the Western. It became in America the Western. Uh, one of the first, probably the first real major Western, the thing that established the genre was Owen Wister's book, The Virginian, which I also recommend. It was written in 1902. Very, very entertaining, extraordinarily entertaining book. And virtually every Western grows out of this. And the interesting thing about this, Owen Wister was kind of an intellectual, uh, but he would spend his summers, I think, in Wyoming. And he was, he was fascinated by this little period of time in the late 1800s when there were cow actual cowboys and all this. And he started writing about it, and he wrote about the violence of it and the darkness of it and the difficulty of it. And his friend, Theodore Roosevelt, said, no, 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 don't do that because Theodore Roosevelt loved like the natural life. He said, write about it, write about these guys as, as the model of manhood essentially turned them into modern knights. And that's what Owen Wister did. Instead of the usual stories that were being told of outlaws and Jesse James, he told the story about the Virginian, who is the classic Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper played him in one of the five, I think, film adaptations of it. Uh, he, he was the classic Gary Cooper, soft-spoken, good man who sometimes had to commit violence to make society work, including lynching, uh, you know, cattle rustlers. I mean, he would, he had to commit violence. And these, this went in to become, went on to become kind of the theme of many great Western movies. The man who shot Liberty Valance, right? The, the old song, a man comes in with a law book in his hand, but before the law uh, can be put into force, uh, somebody has to shoot Liberty Valance because he's the bad guy. Somebody has to do the right thing. And this became, uh, turned into uh, characters like Shane, who rides into the valley, kills all the bad guys, and then rides out a hero, a dying hero, and becomes a Christ figure. Shane is a Christ figure. He comes into the valley, he saves the valley, and then he leaves through violence. And this is the famous scene in the movie Shane. The novel was by Jack Schaefer, another great read if you want to read it. I've read it maybe five times. Uh, but this is the famous scene from the movie where Alan Ladd playing Shane says goodbye to the boy and tells him why he has to go. Joey, there's no living with for the killing. There's no going back from one. Right or wrong, it's a brand. 
or brand sticks. There's no going back. Now you run on home to your mother and tell her. Tell her everything's all right. And there aren't any more guns in the valley. Shay. It's bloody. You're hurt. I'm all right, Joey. You go home to your mother and your father and grow up to be strong and straight. So there are no more guns in the valley. The boy can go home to his mother, the feminine influence, and grow up strong and straight. And the this this Western hero has been replaced as as we've turned from a backward-looking society to a technological society where we look forward to a technological age, has been replaced by the superheroes. These superheroes are now doing violence for the good. They're the, they're the Christian knights. The film Logan by James Mangold basically makes this explicit by having the people watch Shane. And when Wolverine dies in Logan, his daughter stands at his grave and repeats that scene you just saw. Here's that scene from Logan. There's no living with the killing. There's no going back. Right or wrong, it's a brand. A brand that's... Now you run on home to your mother. You tell her everything's all right. There are no more guns in the valley. So Christianity shapes war into a spiritual effort that invents, it gives us the knight in shining armor. The knight in shining armor becomes the cowboy. The cowboy becomes the superhero. And at the end of Logan, she takes the cross that's on Wolverine's grave and she turns it down to make the X, making the circle complete. In other words, this is a Christian idea that has now come complete in these stories that we're telling us. So war in Western art has at least three natures, which is one, it's a practical necessity. It's something you do if you want to conquer. Uh, it's something you do in defense of your country, but it's also a force of male nature. It is the ma- expression of male nature uh, in human nature. Uh, and it's also a fight for the right that becomes a symbol of the inner struggle. And I think one of the things that happens when we talk about war is that politicians and political talkers confuse those three different versions of war. And it's up to a free people to distinguish when they are making that that confusion uh, for the wrong reason, when that confusion is actually confusing the issue. So we went into Afghanistan, the Middle East, arguing that we were fighting for the right, that this was a Christian thing. Uh, Now we're arguing it's a practical necessity. But really, I think that we should come to grip with the idea that there is a need for war, a need for adventure, a need for masculine energy to be released. And I think maybe it would be a wiser idea to turn that to space travel and to space exploration and let these endless wars finally end. So one thing I'm really excited, looking forward to in my new house is a new chair from X-Chair. X-Chair has you covered for all your office chair needs. I am going to get one. The secret is not only their patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which I'm very, very much looking forward to. It offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back. But now, thanks to their new XHMT technology, you can also get heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. So the question is whether I'll be able to work or whether my wife will steal my chair. The 
XHMT delivers heat and massage technology right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairclavin.com. That's the letter xchairclavin.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairclavin.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blade casters. That's xchairclavin.com. You know how to spell X, but how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So it's Friday. You know what that means. Ben Shapiro has written another book. (laughs) The guy seems to write as fast as he talks, but his books are good too, which is kind of disgusting. But if you've been looking to brush up on your understanding of authoritarianism in order to fight the leftist power grab currently underway, this is the book for you. It's called The Authoritarian Moment. Ben wrote it to help Americans get ahead of the left-wing politicians, celebrities, and corporate giants who are stripping us of our freedoms under the guise of the greater good. In the book, he gives some background on how we got here and tips on fighting back. So if you want to preserve your individual rights and protect the ones you love from mob rule, go check out his book today, The Authoritarian Moment. It's available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other major booksellers. And if you've been wondering what it's like to watch Candace take down leftists live, now's your chance to find out. Tickets to join Candace's live studio audience in Nashville are free, but only to all Access members, and they're limited to her Monday tapings throughout the month of June. This gets better. You can get 20% off an All Access membership right now by using the code All Access at checkout. Just head to dailywire.com slash tickets to secure your spot. Hurry, seating is limited, and Candace's show is in high demand, so spots will go fast. Again, just head to dailywire.com slash tickets to be part of an experience so beautiful it would bring tears to a leftist's eyes. That's how we designed it. All right, in our desperate attempt to raise the level of intelligence and elegance on this show, we always bring you the best guests we can, and today is no exception. We have Lila Rose, one of my favorites. She's a speaker, writer, human rights activist, the founder of Live Action, which is a nonprofit dedicated to ending abortion, and she's a podcast host on The Lila Rose Show, and she's written a book called Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. It's out now. Lila, it's always good to see you. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you too. And doing doing well. Thank you. So let let's start out by t- talking about you first. I mean, I want to talk about abortion. I think it's one of the most important subjects we can talk about. But I want to know how you got involved in this. What what propelled you to take this path? Uh, well, I got involved as a teenager. Started live action at fifteen, and it was the result of a lot of moments that were just uh, turning points for me as a younger kid, realizing what abortion was. Uh, I'm one of eight kids. I'm in a big, from a big family. And so five younger siblings had the ultrasound pictures on the fridge growing up. So there was always this very pro-life ethic in the house growing up. But I found out about abortion and I was, by reading a book, I actually saw images of victims of abortion in that book. You can see the humanity of the baby in the first trimester. It's just undeniable and uh, it was so remarkable. And it broke my heart when I started to learn about it, as it does for many people. And at the time, the abortion rate was 3,000 children killed a day in America legally. And um, I, Mother Teresa was a big hero of mine growing up. And she had this, uh, I didn't know her, of course, but I knew of her and admired her. And she would call abortion. And I read her words. She said, abortion is the greatest destroyer of peace in the world. And reading those words as a kid, I was just, it crystallized 
the crisis for me. I mean, there's a lot of issues. I was very much interested in social justice issues as a girl. I was one of those very empathetic types. But when I read those words, you know, Mother Teresa did not say poverty. She didn't say racism. She didn't say sexism was the greatest destroyer of peace. She said abortion was. She could have said a lot of other things. And as I just investigated that more and learned more, when you destroy that bond of love between a mother and her child and make the womb a war zone, how do we how do we have peace in any society? So I was just deeply convicted. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I wanted to do something. And I started live action to educate other young people because I thought that's the key. You know, people just knew about fetal development, you know, what they, what abortion actually does, the harm to women, then we can change things. And, and uh, it just began a wild journey <laughs> uh, once I stuck my, stuck my neck out there a little bit and tried to make a difference. Do you, well, do you, you must meet a lot of women who've had abortions, I'm, I'm assuming. What do you find when you talk to them or can you talk to them? Um, I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of talking to interviewing hundreds and hundreds of women who've had abortions over the years and, and men who've been part of those decisions, some of them. And, you know, the common, I think a couple of the common themes that I see, first of all, just total heartbreak. Um, and these are women who uh, had this moment of realization, this was my baby. This was a baby. Uh, there's just this devastating heartbreak that they experience. And then, you know, anger over the lies that they're told and, and anger for how our society, you know, presents abortion as a quick fix, right? I mean, they say, if you are pregnant, it's unplanned, you don't, can't afford it, you're in school, your partner's not supportive, just have an abortion. And it's not that simple in the end for the woman. I mean, just have an abortion. That's a pregnancy she had for a child, a son or daughter she had. And she might walk out feeling momentary relief after her abortion, but I mean, according to studies, the social research that's been done, it's going to be devastating for her lifelong. So, you know, I'll never forget, I actually talk about one of these women in my book, Fighting for Life. After a speech I gave, she came up to me. She's an older woman. And she said, I haven't told anyone this for, you know, 40 years. She'd lived with it like 30, 40 years. And she said, but I think about it every day. You know, her eyes are filling with tears, the abortion she had as a young woman. And it's just it's devastating. And it makes me upset. I, you know, we need to women deserve education. They deserve support. And we need to stop proposing abortion as a solution, killing children as a solution to, to our problems in our society. You know, one of the central arguments of the pro-abortion people is that the alternative to illegal abortions is going to be dangerous back alley type abortions, as the phrase goes. First of all, is that True. And I guess the, the first question I should ask is, is what you want to, to have abortion made illegal? Is that is that what you would prefer? Uh, and if yes. so, is that argument fair? OK. Yes, I, th I think it's essential. I mean, if abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human life, which it is, uh, the only difference, there's no moral difference between killing a newborn and killing a preborn. They're both human beings with the same value and our law should protect both. Um, how you protect both, you know, there's nuances in any state murder laws, how you enforce those, you know, there's a lot of mitigating factors with a lot of abortions, because there's pressure, um, the woman experiencing a lot of uh, fear or anxiety, you know, in the process of maybe seeking out an abortion. But I think that the key principle is this with back, the, you know, the, the whole thing of back alley abortions. If you make any crime illegal, you're going to still see some of that crime. You know, we make rape illegal. Some rape still happens. 
that doesn't mean you make rape legal, right? That doesn't make you mean you make theft legal. It doesn't make you mean make fraud legal because it can still happen. Uh, that being said, in countries that have made abortion illegal, they have seen a sharp decline in the abortion rate and they have very low back alley abortion rates. And that's because women, ultimately, we, you know, we're not children. We understand um, risk. And yes, you can be driven to such fear and extreme, uh, you know, a state of mind that's so extreme that you can take extreme risk upon yourself. But most women having abortions today, Andrew, they're, they're doing it because it's presented as a quick fix. The abortion clinic is a few miles away. They might be able to get it funded by the state. In California, you get it paid for by the state of California, and it's presented as the quick fix. If abortions no longer the quick fix, far fewer, far fewer women will have them. And that's proved out in countries that have made abortion illegal. And it's also proved out in our country. Before we made abortion illegal in 1973, when the or legal, the Supreme Court ruled in Roe v. Wade to make it legal, uh, the abortion rate was very low, the, you know, the back alley abortion rate. Once it became legal, it skyrocketed. And so you just look mm. at, you know, our history that the other other states and we do know lives will be saved if abortion is illegal, far less women will have abortions. And, uh, and and I think the other key thing to acknowledge is, you know, women are still dying from abortion under legal abortion. In Argentina, they just legalized abortion. One of the pro-abortion activists went and had her first legal abortion in a hospital. She died. She and her baby both died because of the procedure um, in the United States. It's not even carefully documented, but women are dying today from abortion procedures in legal clinics. So it's already a dangerous procedure. Um, it shouldn't be supported by the law. Yesterday in the New York Times, a feminist named Jessica Valente wrote a piece um, about saying the Food and Drug Administration has announced that people seeking abortion pills during the COVID-19 pandemic will no longer have to visit a doctor's office to get a prescription. She goes on, she says, for years, anti-abortion activists have tried to impose their morality under the guise of women's health and protection. Legislators have proposed anti-choice bills with names like women's right to know, which sound compassionate, but in reality force doctors to falsely claim that women who end their pregnancy suffer physical and mental harm. The primary political strategy of abortion foes relies on the claim that abortion is brutal and dangerous, a myth that is much harder to perpetuate when people can easily access medicine to safely end their pregnancies at home. You want to respond to that? I'm familiar with Jessica Valenti as a as, as a very um, you know she commonly commonly comments as a frequently comments as a pro-abortion advocate. And first of all, abortion is always brutal for the preborn child. It dismembers that child. It starves that child to death chemically. Uh, it forcibly removes that child from his or her mother's womb and kills that that child. So if you're that child, abortion's brutal. It's easy to say it's not brutal when you're the one uh, who's strong writing a New York Times op-ed and you're protected by law, as Jessica Valenti is. It's easy to say it's not brutal when you're the adult who's protected by law if someone tries to take your life. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is she's commenting on a, on chemical abortion, on RU486 abortion, which has thousands of adverse side effects. They don't even require counting for it. But even despite that, there's been thousands of adverse side effects, hemorrhaging, internal bleeding, even death, 24 deaths from these pills since the FDA under under uh, President Clinton then, Bill Clinton made it legal uh, to ship these, to hand out these lethal pills that kill human beings to women. And so what uh, President Biden is trying to do is make it possible to actually send lethal pills that you take in the mail without any medical in-person consultation. And there's a lot of problems here with this for the woman's sake, as, as well as it being lethal for the child. 
two things I'll just mention that Jessica, of course, did not mention in her op-ed for the New York Times. Number one, when you have a pill shipped to your home, you can do whatever you want with that. If I'm a sexual abuser and I have an underage girl I'm abusing and I want to give her a secret abortion when this happens commonly in our country and I I want to do it without anybody knowing about it, I'll arrange to have this pill shipped to my home. I'll have the young girl do an online consultation. I'll control the whole thing. And now I'm handing lethal pills to underage girls. So that's something, that scenario, I'm not making this up. This will happen. Um, Court cases prove that young girls are regularly taken to abortion clinics by their abusers. So this is another tool in the hand of abusers, of traffickers, um, because there's no healthcare professional actually having to sit down with the woman or the girl to help her out and to actually see how she's doing. The second thing that Jessica doesn't mention is ectopic pregnancy. This gets a little in the weeds here, but about one, two percent of pregnancies are ectopic, meaning they're not in the womb. The baby actually implants in another part of the woman's body, usually her fallopian tube. And the problem with this is this can be lethal for the mother. It almost always is and lethal for the baby. And so if for about one to two percent of women who's or, who are ordering these pills, there's no medical examination. Right. So because Jessica wants women to get them in the mail, they don't go into the doctor's office. There's no ultrasound. If they take that pill, the the effects of the pill, which are very damaging, it's basically forcing an abortion, can look very much like the effects of an ectopic pregnancy. And if you don't catch an ectopic pregnancy in time, it can be lethal for the woman. So what this means is the pill will be masking for potentially thousands of women with ectopic pregnancies her symptoms. And we can see potentially thousands of these women at risk for their lives because they're not getting proper medical care. So this is just one one example of how devastating this new policy is from the Biden administration. Let me let me ask you, this is a a somewhat complex question, but it's something that troubles me a lot that uh, women who go in to get abortions, as as you have said, are sort of operating in a cloud of unknowing. They have been told that this is a simple procedure, that it's going to be easy, that, you know, it's going to solve their problems, as you say, a quick fix. They then go in and have the abortion. And as Gloria Steinem once said, the one abortion most women support is their own. In order for them to grasp what they've done, they have to face something terrible. They have to face the idea that they have done something that is really wrong. How do you approach women? to? It's much easier for them to say, no, 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 I was right. I, I did the right thing. This helped me. My life is better now. How do you approach women and ca- or can you approach women and mm-hmm. break through that? without really destroying them. Do you understand my question? I mean, I know it's a complicated idea, but it... Yeah. No, it's a very, uh, very good question, Andrew. And we think about it a lot. I think about it a lot. And I actually, you know, my first chapter in my book is called Let Your Heart Break. And one of my last chapters in my book is Learn to Grieve. Because if you don't let your heart break and learn to grieve, whether you've had an abortion or you haven't, no matter what's in your life, we all have different, you know, devastating experiences in varying degrees in our lives. If we just bury it, bury the the thing that we did or the thing that was done to us and never grieve it, never get angry about it, never let ourselves feel about it and get the healing we need, then we we can't heal. You know, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from freedom, from that deep wound or trauma. And so the same is true. You know, we work a lot to encourage women to seek out post-abortion healing. I've worked with women personally to connect them to these resources. And one of the key things with post-abortion healing is letting yourself grieve because that was the loss of a child. And is that devastating? Yes. I mean, I'll share personally, I just, my husband and I, we, we experienced a miscarriage recently and 
it, it was devastating. Yeah. It was absolutely devastating. And in, in a sense, I'll never be over it because that was a child we lost. Um, but I had to let myself be devastated. And there's pain in that. Um, and of course, if it's a miscarriage that you chose, you know, an abortion, um, there's another added element of devastation because that's something that you could have not done. You know, you, there goes all the could have, that child could have been grown up. It could have had a first birthday. He or she could have, you know, had a whole life. So, but, but allowing ourselves to feel, feel the devastation, I think is key. So in that sense, when we educate at live action, we, we share about the abortion procedure. We actually share the actual animation, um, medical animations of the procedure. So people can see actually what happens during abortion. Does it make some women who've had abortions very you know, uncomfortable? Yes, but we encourage still knowing what happened because if you don't ever grapple with what actually happened to you and your child, you're not going to be able to heal. And that's one of the, the key principles I talk about in my book and that we encourage when we, when we do education. The book is uh, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World by Lila Rose. Lila, I'm out of time, but I'd like just a, a quick answer. Uh, do you think you'll succeed? I do. And it's not that I will succeed. It's that we will succeed. I think that, you know, the arc of of our history can bend towards justice if enough people stand up. And there's more and more people standing up than ever before. The abortion rate has declined in the last 10 years. There's unprecedented pro-life legislation right now at the state level, hundreds and hundreds of bills. Um, it's a quiet revolution, but it's a revolution. And I don't think we can survive as a civilization if we accept the killing of our children. And so it's a life or death struggle, but I think we will choose life in the end. And I'm excited and honored to be a part of the fight. Lila Rose, the book is Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. It's great to see you, Lila. I hope you'll come back. Good to see you, too. Thanks, Andrew. All right. We're coming toward the end of the show. I can just see the Clavenless weekend rising up like a monster on the horizon. You're going to need some good advice. Luckily, there's the mailbag. It's vaccinated or masked. I don't think I can stand these anymore. All right, uh, let's start. We're going to start with a video question. We love getting video questions. Uh, please keep them under a minute if you send them in. But this is from a lady named Sarah who wrote us before and is letting us know what happened since. Uh, here she is. Hey, Clavin. It's Sarah again. I wanted to follow up with you after you answered a question of mine about, I guess it's been about a year ago. Um, my question was about coping with fear and trying again after losing a child. Um, your answer was very meaningful to me, and it really impacted my life, and I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciated it. Um, I also thought I might return the favor. You often say that your answers will change our lives, but you're not sure if they'll change them for the better. Well, I guess I could show you. certainly changed mine for the better, so thank you. Also, if I can be greedy, I'd like to ask another question. I am curious as to what your wife thinks about all of these conservative fangirls calling you Hot Gandalf. I mean, I like the nickname. I'm just curious. Thanks. So when she says, I'll show you, she shows a an extraordinarily beautiful baby. She had uh, asked after losing a baby, and my response was to tell her, I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I uh, told her a quote of Hemingway that courage is, courage is a matter of suspending your imagination, and she obviously did that, and uh, I think most of us uh, here uh, on the show uh, burst into te tears. <laughs> Not me, of course, but uh, just some others I won't, I won't name. 
Um, she also ex- appended a little note saying the massive expansion of love uh, for her baby. You talk about in your memoir, the great good thing really struck home. My love for my baby is vast and a bit unnerving. She made all of the grief, the fear, and the struggle completely worth it. We are always thrilled when we change lives for the better. Uh, her question was, what does my wife think about people calling me hot Gandalf? And the answer is, I don't know, because my... <laughs> My wife, my wife hates public life with a passion. She wants nothing to do with it. She wants nothing to do with my public life. I never meant to have a public life. I meant to be a writer and sort of sit in my room and just occasionally open the door and throw a book out. Uh, so what has happened? If you watch that Hollywood uh, story, you'll find out how I got a, a public life. Um, and so uh, she uh, is absolutely uninterested. She's not uninterested in what I do. She loves, she's very interested in my work, but she's uninterested in the public part of the life. Um, however, um, so she won't tell me. Um, that's basically it. From Tony, hello, Mr. Clavin. I was brought up Catholic. I pretty much accept all the teachings of the Bible. However, since about the age of 12, I've not been able to accept the personification of God, that picture of the old man in the sky with the gray beard looking down on everyone, casting judgments and handing out bad karma to anyone who strays. Uh, That didn't sound real to me. To what extent do you believe in the personification of God? Or is that just some big accounting system like morphic resonance theory? Does it even matter? It doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter, then why are the Bible and religious teachings so full of it? I think this conundrum has always been my barrier to rejoining Christianity like I say, I'm on board with everything else. Uh, I don't believe in the personification of God in the sense you're talking about at all. A hundred percent not believe in it. And I don't think that most um, believing Christians think that there is an old man in the sky handing out uh, judgments. I think that what we do think is that is a uh, representation of what's going on. It, is, it, may be, it may be what the people who wrote the Bible uh, felt you know, they may be how they felt, but I, I don't think that there is an old man sitting in the sky uh, handing out judgments in that way. I think that when you come to Jesus, what you're looking at is you are looking at the human experience of God. You're looking at the incarnation of God. God made flesh and incarnated as a human being. In the same way, when you look at a table, the table is, is, a, is un, an unknowable motion of, of uh, energy but we see it as a table and we can use it as a table and we can relate to it as a table. And I think that uh, God incarnated himself as Jesus in order for us to know him. As, as the Bible says, no one has ever seen God. It says that in the Bible, no one has ever seen God, but we have experienced Jesus. And when you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. That is what that idea is. On the question of the uh, judgment and justice of God, we do believe that, that because life is unjust, Good people don't uh, get what they want all the time. Bad things happen to good people. Uh, Bad people sometimes succeed and live nice, long lives and have a a great time. What we believe is that the... that the territory of justice is eternal. It is longer than what we see in life. And we believe that because we are given hearts full of justice and we believe that God is good and that the good things in us are an imitation of God. So we trust, we have faith that there is some justice after this. We don't know what that looks like. You know, just like the old man in the sky, the idea of a hell of fire and flames is just a human way of trying to put forward what happens. We do see that people who commit bad acts and who live against their conscience. And we see that they get twisted. We see that they get hollowed out. Uh, we see that something becomes small and ugly in them. And maybe it's, um, it's 
fair to deduce that that goes on into eternity uh, and is not altogether pleasant. It's entirely possible, as, as other theologians have said, that hell is empty, that even the devil will eventually be rescued from hell because God's mercy is so powerful and so, so much greater than our imaginations. We just don't know, but we trust we trust that this unfair system that we're in, this broken system that we're in, is a small part of a bigger system that actually works. And that when Jesus came, he was an ambassador from that bigger system. And in having faith in him, we are having faith that, yes, this, we see this system isn't just. We see it's not fair. We see it's full of sin. We see that sin wins. We see that the devil wins. Over, over the great period of time that is eternity, that is beyond time, that is not time at all, really, uh, we believe that there is justice. And that, I don't think that necessarily takes the, the, um, takes the form of bad people getting smacked around. It may just mean they have a longer uh, path. We don't, we don't know. We do not know. And we don't get a vote. And that's the important thing. That's what I was talking about the other day. People have been writing me angry letters about this because nothing the Christians hate hearing more than you shouldn't judge people. <laughs> but, but we don't get a vote on that. We don't get a vote what it is. We don't get a vote what it looks like. We just have faith that the, that the world, the system that we're in is a good world because God is a good God. And we have plenty of evidence for that. I'm not going to talk about that now, but we have plenty of evidence that God is a good God and that we have reason for our faith. Our faith is not blind faith. Our faith comes from our own instincts of what is real and, and the way it plays out in life. Um, and if you want to know more about that, you should read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment as well as the Bible. So if that's what's, if that's what's keeping you out of church, go to church because that's a silly thing. That's not, that's not a real thing. That's not something that anybody is actually thinking about like old men with long beards in the sky. That's a representa representation, human representation of an unknowable reality. Uh, from Timothy, when you were growing up in the 60s and 70s, there were turbulent times. I remember you mentioning your experience in the 77 blackout in New York. I tend to think we were more united back then than we are now. Are there any differences in the national mood in this set of crises? And do you think America will be able to come out of this within the next few years? Also, with everything going on, I've started to go back to church and wanted to say you helped inspire me to do so. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad that, that's, I'm glad that's true. Um, yeah, the, the, the big difference now is the, the utter corruption of the media and the academy. That, those things were beginning to happen in the 70s. They had happened in the 70s. The turbulent times of the 70s were because of Supreme Court, of, of many leftist Supreme Court decisions and many leftist uh, welfare policies. Those are the things that brought that on. Those are the things that are bringing it on now. But the difference was the power of propaganda uh, and the power of the complete corruption of the press, the complete corruption of the academies, uh, the complete corruption of people in authority, corporations, had not happened. And that's happened now. What, but what also wasn't true is we did not have the guerrilla information network that we now have. We didn't have things like what I'm doing right this second. We didn't have uh, a more democratic uh, information flow like we have now. That's the thing that they're trying to shut down when they kick you off Twitter, when they kick you off YouTube, and when they kick Trump off Facebook, when they kick them off. That's what they're trying to stop. They thought they had the information network locked down, but the computer, in fact, opened it up to so many people. So you ask, uh, am I hopeful? I am hopeful, uh, but th there's going to be bad times. People have to catch on that this is a bad thing, and Joe Biden is doing everything he can to seize this moment when he has no mandate whatsoever. He's doing He or whoever is controlling him, is doing whatever he can to set in place the kind of, uh, of 
buyout of your freedom that the left always uses to proceed. Oh, we're going to take care of your children. Oh, we're going to give you free school. Oh, we're going to pay off your student loan. They're not giving you stuff. Nobody gives you stuff. They are buying stuff. They are buying your right to choose your own life and be responsible for your own life. That most important part of freedom, which is being responsible for your own life. They're buying that away from you. And so we have to hope they can be stopped. They don't have a big uh, majority right now. We have to hope for victories in the midterms, but I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that the uh, uh, that America has a few good years left. All right, I got to stop there. It is now the edge, the brink of the Clavenless weekend. I will be moving out of my house over uh, the Clavenless week. I will be moving out of my house over the weekend, but I will still see you from wherever I am, uh, from Nashville, from all the Airbnbs I'm going to be living with until my new house is ready. So I'm not going away. However, it doesn't matter because the chances of your surviving the Clavenless week are almost not. I mean, it's almost nothing. It's, it's almost incalculable how small they are. But if you do, if you crawl through the darkness into the light of uh, the Clavenless goodness once again. I will be here. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2021. Bill de Blasio tries to bribe New Yorkers with cheeseburgers to take the vaccine. Joe Biden ignores his own CDC and the army goes woke. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.